Thank you very much for coming on a rainy Washington April day. Uh, you all get kudos for coming. Uh, before we get into this event, I have a couple of quick announcements to make. Uh, first, wanted to thank Danica, Jake, Tara, Nick, and everybody else who helped put this event together and who do uh, events here at CSIS. The second issue is you have no cards on your seat. So uh, when you have questions, we've got some folks here. If you could just raise your hand and wave your card, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we have some folks that, uh, that will come collect them and they'll, we'll uh, bring them up here. And near the end of the session, we'll start going through um, audience questions. Final issue before I introduce our guest is um, we don't expect any emergencies, but just in case we do, um, please follow my instructions. We will um, move over to the National Geographic uh, Society next door. Their museum, if you haven't been there, is a fantastic museum. You should go there anyway. <laughs> it may be closed after this event, but, uh, but there'll always be another day. So I. I am really pleased to have uh, Rukmini Kalamaki uh, come join us today. We have a lot of things uh, to cover on the ground. Um, one of the things, and I've been involved in terrorism studies for a few decades, one of the things I've always appreciate, appreciated about your work is your willingness to get to the heart of the situation, traveling to areas that are dangerous, but that's where many of the people are. That's where it's important to, to see the, the battle. Also, in talking to individuals, including uh, men, women, children that have participated in this activity, and not just in person, but also online. Sure. So thanks for everything that you do. Uh, and I think you know, your podcasts, your journalism at the New York Times, your um, videos that you've done, it's, uh, it's a real it's a real treat to, to read and listen and watch. Thank you, Seth. So welcome to CSIS. So let's start just because of the, the time sensitivity of this. Um, you were in Syria during the final weeks yes. of the collapse of the caliphate. Can you paint a picture of what you saw around areas like Bagus? I mean, what, as the, the, the last days mm -hmm. of the caliphate, at least, from a territorial perspective, what the picture looked like on the ground? Sure. So in January, um, ISIS was down to just two villages, uh, Baguz and one other one. Um, the second village fell pretty quickly. And around the end of January, my sources um, uh, sent me these panic messages saying, we think Baguz is going to fall. You need to come here right away. So I, I moved heaven and earth to get to, to, to get there January 28th. The, the photographer, Ivor Prickett, who took this image um, and who accompanied me I, uh, was on another assignment. I even tried to get him to leave that other assignment because we thought that the end was, in, was imminent. And we get to Syria January 28th. At that point, I was six and a half months pregnant. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I told my editors that I was going to stay for a few days <laughs> because that, that's what we thought was, you know, was, was in store for us. And we stayed for three weeks. Uh, and this village that was the size of Central Park still had not fallen. And at the end of three weeks, the, the YPG and the SDF were telling us, really, we don't have a timeline. This could take, they were saying, another three weeks, another four weeks. And in fact, it took two months to wrestle this tiny little space um, uh, from, from ISIS. 
Uh, one of the one, one of the things that I that I noticed that was most remarkable, I think, about this battle space, is Bagus is in Derizor. Um, as journalists, you enter through the north, uh, through in a place called Feshkabur. You go to Kamishlo. You drive down through Hasaka, through Ashadadi, and you're driving down through an area that was liberated quite literally years ago. 2015, 2016 is when the battles for Hasaka uh, were were taking place. That area is supposed to be safe. But the 100-mile road that leads to the spot where journalists were embedding is now so unsafe, so unsafe from IEDs, from ambushes, from targeted assassinations, that the YPG has put in a series of rules. Uh, reporters are not allowed to travel alone. They have to go in a convoy. You can't leave after 1 p.m. in the afternoon because they don't want you to end up on the road in the evening hours. And you can't leave if, it's, if there's fog. And in the, in the winter months, there was fog almost every day. So we would, we would end up you know, getting ready to leave, and we couldn't leave. And this is an area that has been liberated. And that was really striking to me. So we're talking about the territorial defeat of ISIS. But I'm there with drivers who were more frightened to drive the 100-mile road that had been liberated than to actually go to the front lines in Bagus. At least in Bagus, what they explained to me is that in Bagus, you have a clear front line. You know that the bad guys are in front of you. The back uh, is technically safe. So you're, you're facing in one direction, and you know where they're located. You know their address. In these areas that have been liberated, it's as if you know, you've kicked the hornet's nest. And they're, they're everywhere and nowhere. Um, and, they're, and they're still managing to cause significant damage in areas that are liberated. And that speaks to, I think, the challenge ahead which is that territory-wise, yes, they don't have any more in Iraq and Syria, but the insurgency lives on. Mm -hmm. what, 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 for, for those who haven't spent much time there, what does the area look like? As you're sitting there in Bagus, what, is it, what does it look like? What does the environment look like there? As somebody who's covered you know, Mosul and some of these other much more dramatic uh, fights, these urban fights, it looked like nothing. I mean, it, it, you're, you're on the edge of basically an agricultural terrain. You're seeing fields, you're seeing palm trees, you're seeing a couple of buildings. Um, it's deceptively quiet, so deceptively, so deceptively quiet that we ended up taking risks that in retrospect we probably shouldn't have taken because it looks like there's nothing there. It just, it just looks like it's a patch of nothingness. And we happened to be on the front line in Bagus on the day, end of February, when ISIS mounted probably its most fierce uh, counterattack. And in the space of a couple of hours, um, uh, we heard on the radio, because we were with the YPG, and we heard on the radio YPG commanders announcing that 500 of their men had abandoned their positions mm -hmm. as ISIS was, was pushing in. They pushed in several kilometers in, um, killed a whole bunch of people, and then retreated. Uh, but it looks like nothing you know, when you're there. It looks, it looks like a piece of farmland. So can you talk for a minute, and we'll, we'll, we'll move to ISIS in a moment, but can you talk a little bit about, about the Kurdish forces that you saw there, the SDF, YPG? What, what was your general impression of who they were, how they were armed, what were they doing on a regular, on a regular day to day basis? These, these are the forces that the coalition, including the US, are working with. Right. So we call them SDF, but they're really YPG. Um, uh, uh, everyone that I was with, you know, they would, when they wanted to be quoted, they would want to be quoted as SDF because that gives them some sort of, I think, some distance from an entity that is uh, irksome to Turkey. Um, but it's very clear that the YPG was running the show. Among the YPG commanders, 
Um, they don't want to talk about this, but every senior commander I knew spoke Turkish. Mm -hmm. That points to where they've come from. <laughs> These are people that do have ties to the PKK. Um, there's, there's no denying that. But at the same time, they have been by far, um, I think, not, only, not just the only, but the most reliable partner that, that the United States has had in this fight against ISIS. And they have paid heavily for, for, for their role in that fight. Uh, when I was there, they were talking about close to 10,000 of their fighters had died as martyrs, they call them, mm -hmm. um, in the fight against ISIS versus you know, just over a dozen uh, for American troops in both Iraq and Syria. So that gives you a sense of how, of how, much, they're, of how much they're invested. Now, the tip of the spear um, is, so it's, it's a Kurdish majority force. There's an Arab element. Mm -hmm. The Arab element, from what I could tell, was the least professionalized. Um, I mean, there was a joke among journalists that, that the YPG were, were very regimented and would, would, would be very careful about where they let us go because they didn't want us to get hurt. If you wanted to go somewhere, go find an Arab fighter um, because they had no chain of command and they would just take you wherever you wanted to go. Um, but they are there, and, but, but it's clear that it's the Kurds, really, that are, that are manning this fight. Mm -hmm. The Arabs are almost there. I don't want to say this, but... Um, it, it's almost for show. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're not the ones who are the decision makers, the real commanders, the, the real leaders. What about the civilian um, presence on the ground? Your reporting highlights the stream of people leaving villages. What were the, when it came to whether they were women, children, men, what was the impact, what kind of toll as you were visiting villages like Bagus, what was the civilian toll that you saw? So by the time the, 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 the battle for Bagus had started when I was there, um, th there was a daily stream of what they called civilians who were coming out of Bagus. They were coming through the back of the village, um, through a mountain, and then into a point in the desert where, where American special forces were waiting for them. They were being fingerprinted, biometrics, etc. And they were calling them civilians because there were, a lot, there were mostly women and children. Mm -hmm. But what was apparent to me and what the YPG confirmed is that these are almost 100% ISIS wives and ISIS children. And the way you can tell is there was, the, during the three weeks that I was there, there was not a single person that came out that was from Bagus. They're from Iraq, they're from other parts of Syria, Aleppo, and they're from Kazakhstan, from Russia, from, from, uh, from Finland, from Europe. Um, they're not from this place. Now, there was a distinction between those who would admit they were with ISIS and those who wouldn't. Um, I had this completely comical discussion with this Iraqi who insisted that he wasn't ISIS. And I'm like, so where are you from? He's like, um, well, I used to be from Fallujah. And then I moved to, uh, to, 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 to Eastern Mosul. And then I moved to Western Mosul. And then I moved to Talafar. And then I moved to Qaim. <laughs> I mean, he was basically. These are not exactly vacation <laughs> spots at the end of it. He was basically like just chasing the retreating shadow of the caliphate. <laughs> but I'm not ISIS, you know? And I'm like, and then he ends up in Bagus. Um, but uh, but what, was, what was surprising is how many there were. When, when I got there January 28th, we were told there's a couple thousand ISIS fighters, maybe 2,000, and about 5,000 what they called civilians, which they meant the women and children of these fighters. The latest figure that I got from the ICRC um, is that just in February, they had close to 40,000, 40,000 people come out of Bagus. It was, it was just amazing. Like it, it looks, again, it looks like nothing. 
And it was, I, I just, I still don't understand how they were able to pack so many people um, into this space. But it really was the last stand territorially for ISIS. So all of these fighters and their families and their kids, who were, I think, the true believers, ended up being funneled into the spot where they got stuck. Um, and right now, the, the figures we're hearing from our whole camp is 72,000 people. Yeah, I'm seeing those yeah. from UNHCR, among yeah. other places. What, what was morale like uh, to the degree you could tell among those streaming out? How, how dejected or how, maybe how, how, how happy, not happy, but how, how did they view the future, if, if yeah. you could tell? You know, on, on any given day, I could find people who were dejected and then people who were completely defined. You know, who would say, I, there, there was this one man who came out, he had lost 20, he was Iraqi, again, one of these people who had gone Fallujah, whatever, um, and he had lost 20 members of his family, 20 members in Baghouz, in an airstrike, all of them Iraqi. Um, and he was there with his son and his daughter, that was all that was left of his, uh, of his family, and he was being bandaged as I spoke to him. And, and all he could say was how much he loves Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, uh, how he considers him this learned man, um, how, uh, how the caliphate might have been defeated in this little piece of land, but it's not defeated in Anbar, it's mm -hmm. not defeated in West Africa, it's not defeated in Afghanistan. Um, and there's some truth to that. There's some truth to that, yeah. And, uh, and so on any given day, I would find both. What about, what about um, starting with some of the women that you ha interviewed and profiled, like Hoda, for example, or, or Kimberly Pullman, mm -hmm. these were also uh, individuals that weren't from villages in Syria, weren't even Iraqis, uh, yeah. for that matter. C can you give us a sense of the, the profile of some of these people you interviewed? So Hoda Muthana is a woman who is from Alabama. Um, as a sophomore in college, she uh, lied to her parents and said she was going to a school event um, in Atlanta and instead ended up jumping on a flight to Turkey and, um, and joining the Islamic State. And interestingly, she didn't, a, a lot of women have a love interest that ends up bringing them there. She had none. Mm -hmm. And she ended up getting married once she arrived you know, in the women's holding area. Uh, she spoke a very good game about how, how how regretful she was. She wept in front of me. Um, this was after the fact, obviously. This is, so basically, she doesn't, she, doesn't, she doesn't make it all the way to Baghouz. She, was, she, was, uh, she escaped, I think, the village just before Baghouz. But she essentially stayed inside the caliphate for almost five years. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, she, she wanted to speak to me as an American reporter to get out the message that she wants to come home, that she really made a very big mistake. I think to myself, like, making a mistake is like not following your taxes. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, the mistake of joining the Islamic State, that's like more than Ag a mistake. Against family, including her parents, will. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I, I left the interview somewhat confused. I mean, on the one, when, when she was weeping, it's hard to not feel sorry for her. Um, she had a very small baby that she was carrying around who is technically a U.S. citizen. But when I came away and I went to my, um, and, and I was, able to get back on the Wi-Fi. And I went back and looked at her social media presence. She was saying these incredibly virulent, violent things through 2017. Mm -hmm. First on Twitter, then on Instagram. And there is something quite convenient about deciding that you've had it with this group and that it's not the right thing, just as they're about to lose their very last little piece of land. Right? She could have tried to run away from Raqqa, from Mayadeen, from all of the other in-between places. Of course, it's very dangerous, mm -hmm. but a lot of women did it. 
a lot of people managed to get out then. She somehow waited till the very end, which does make me wonder if this is an opportunistic um, attempt. So two questions. One is, what, this is kind of a narrow question, what, what is your sense of what her radicalization process looked like, particularly back in Alabama? Right. So before she made the decision to go to Turkey and then into Syria, that's one. And then second, um, what is the broader role, because you, you've, you've interviewed a number of other women too that, that were married to ISIS fighters that said a lot of this online. What's your sense of the role of women within an organization like ISIS? So her, her radicalization was 100% online. And this, this is important to, uh, to keep in mind. After every, after every jihadist attack, um, whether it's Omar Mateen at Pulse or whether it's the Paris attacks, we always, we as, as media organizations, we always end up sending somebody to the nearest mosque where that person may have prayed mm -hmm. to ask the poor people there um, whether they remember anything untoward about this person. And we always come away with nothing. Um, and that, that speaks to what ISIS is doing. The radicalization is not in mosques. It's not a physical process that happens between, between people in the physical space. It's happening in cyberspace. And that was the case for her. She was part of something called the Bakia family, which is this online Twitterverse of young men and women who got radicalized around the same time. Um, and a good number of them were from the West and tried to join uh, the Islamic State. What's the second question? Uh, yeah. Just the broader role of women, oh, women. in, in yeah. ISIS, because it's an, it, it, many people, when they think of ISIS, think of the, of the men, the men yeah. and the fighters. So, you know, we're, we're used to describing these women as ISIS wives, which I think, um, with, which I think underplays, you know, their role. They, they had agency, uh, both in their radicalization process and in the decision to join and at some level within the organization. Women were crucial to ISIS uh, as, as a state. I don't think that you can have a state without women and children. Uh, it, it, was, it was the fact that there are these tens of, quite literally, tens of thousands of women and children that were under ISIS's yoke, that were there apparently willingly, that I think gave them the chops um, to, to, to claim that this was a caliphate, an Islamic state. And so I, I see them as quite important um, of course, I don't know how that should reflect in, in, in the penal decision, that, mm -hmm. that in the justice uh, dimension that, that should come next. So another woman that you profiled was Kimberly Pullman. Yes. Um, how did her situation, how was it similar or different to, to Hoda's? So Kimberly, um, who I'd never heard of before, uh, Hoda had been profiled in, in stories before, but Kimberly was a complete unknown. Kimberly was a real anomaly. She had left, uh, she, she was a, a dual American-Canadian citizen, mm -hmm. but had grown up in Canada. Uh, and she left her home in Canada from, from I, we spoke to her sister, we spoke to other relatives of hers. From everything we could tell, she had a pretty loving family. And she was 40 mm -hmm. uh, when she left to join ISIS. That's not the normal profile. The, mm -hmm. Most of the people who joined from the West were millennials, were, you know, uh, early 20s. Um, so she was well over the hill. Uh, her, her sister in, um, <laughs> in interviews with us tried to claim that she was mentally unwell. I, I'm not a doctor, but she certainly did not exhibit anything that suggested that. She was very lucid when she spoke to us, um, you know, very well spoken. And the story she tells is that um, she ended up on bed rest because of a, because of a medical condition. Um, she was incredibly bored and kind of cut off. Cut off. Mm -hmm. Ends up online 
Um, she had already converted to Islam a couple of years earlier, uh, ends up on Facebook seeing images of the Syrian civil war, becomes enraged at uh, the notion that, that Muslims were being killed, and ends up in a one-to-one -one chat with a man who was an ISIS member who asked to marry her, um, and that this becomes you know, the thread that takes her in. And uh, I asked her, I mean, she, and she joins late, I think she joins in 2015. I said, are you really telling me that you hadn't seen James Foley's beheading mm -hmm. or the images of the Jordanian pilot or all of these other really famous things? And she said, you know, these things are on the internet. You don't know what to believe. You know, like, and it's, it's very hard to believe her in that well, moment. It, it, <laughs> yeah. She saw enough on the internet to want to join. To want to join, right, right. Um, and so again, you just, you don't quite know what to make of that. So with both of them, what was, as far as you could gauge, what was the process like to get to Syria? Uh, and because they both explained a little bit and how they got there. Yeah, for pretty much everybody who has joined ISIS as a foreign, as a foreign fighter or as a foreign member, the process is the same. You get to Istanbul. Um, as it became later and later and as authorities were cracking down on people who were trying to travel to Istanbul, they started to take circuitous routes. Mm -hmm. So go to Mexico, from Mexico go to Istanbul, etc. In their case, they, they flew directly. Um, and from there, ISIS gives you a phone number to call. Uh, a, a handler comes to meet you at the airport, drives you to the border. You're in a safe house with other women, uh, and then and then a smuggler gets you across. It's actually quite simple. Um, they, it, it was almost like a travel agency that they'd set up that would get people across. Do you have any sense of how much it costs them to do that, money-wise? It's the cost of the plane ticket, and then you know maybe a hundred or two hundred bucks more. Not a huge amount of money. In Hoda's case, um, what she did is, because she was a university student, she had her parents enroll her um, at the University I saw that. of Alabama. That's in your reporting too, yeah. <laughs> uh, they, she enrolled at the University of Alabama and for, for the, the semester that was coming up. A couple of days later, she went and told the registrar, I'm pulling out, and took the money herself, put that in her account, and took off without her parents knowing. So I want to get into the issue of, of detentions more broadly, uh, but before I do that, um, can you paint a picture about what it's like to report, not, not just for you, but for everybody else over there reporting, the challenges of reporting in a war zone like that. I mean, it's obviously dangerous as well. I've spent time in most of these places myself, so I've, I've had to live through it. But what's it like to report in an environment like this? How do you, how do you figure out who to trust and who not to? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, you've got a family. Your editors at the Times obviously have to be concerned about your safety and well-being. Yeah. What, how do you think through the process of reporting on, in, in, a, in, a, in a war zone like this? So Syria, Syria is really its own thing. It's completely different from reporting in Iraq or West Africa or everywhere else. In, in, in other theaters, we have established um, an established list of freelancers and contractors that we, that we work with. Um, Syria is still kind of a new space. But in Syria, we did have um, a fixer, as we call them, somebody who is not a journalist necessarily, but who has contacts, who we trust, and who becomes our guide into this world. Because of the, the, the imminent fall of the territorial caliphate, there was such a crush of reporters that went in at the same time that I went in, that we weren't able to get our normal 
fixed her. Mustafa was busy with somebody else. So he put me onto basically just a friend <laughs> um, who he trusted. And so because we trust Mustafa, we trusted this young man. But he really had no contacts. <laughs> so basically, it was just you know me me going. He, he knew the general you know procedure. And you of, knew where you wanted to go. He knew where we wanted to go. <laughs> he could speak the language and translate for me. Um, but in terms of you know high level contacts and all of that, I was doing all of that work myself. Um, the procedure is as such: you you, tr you fly to northern Iraq to Kurdistan to Erbil. Uh, it takes five to ten days to get a permit to cross into Syria, which you have to get from the KRG. Uh, once you cross there, you, you basically go to, it's a river, um, and there's, uh, there's a barge, and you cross, you know, all of your stuff is checked, uh, there's certain equipment that can't go across, and um, anyway, so it's kind of a hassle to, to get in. Mm -hmm. uh, and then once we're on the other side, um, this is just New York Times protocol, we're almost always traveling in a two-car convoy, just to make sure that if one car breaks down, you know, you you're have, not stranded. you're not stranded. Yeah. Um, on this particular trip, because I was pregnant, um, my editors very kindly agreed to let me hire one of the two cars was armored. And they put in that expense just to have that extra sort of level of security for me. And then you're basically um, under, you're, you're, you're a guest of the YPG once you go there. Um, and they have a very, a very strict, and in my opinion, somewhat restrictive uh, procedure through which you embed with them. Um, there was a place at a place called Omar Field where we went into a dormitory. Uh, it was strictly segregated by sex, so I as a woman, I was the only woman on my team. My team was in one room and then I was basically in a women's dormitory <laughs> with other female reporters. And you get up every morning and you go either to the desert where the refugees are coming or you go to Baguz um, and, and do the work you can. Uh, just as a reminder to everyone here, too, we do have, uh, uh, you have note cards. If you have questions, please write them down. And then we have, I, I can see Jake going around uh, collecting them. So just make sure you raise them up and he's going around uh, and collecting them. And Jake, if you can bring them up to me pretty soon, uh, we'll move on to that. Uh, there, there is a, a detention problem. I'm going to call it a problem, particularly in Syria, the YPG slash SDF has detained a pretty substantial number of fighters and others in the, uh, in the area. What, what, did you, what did you see when you were there? How serious of an issue was this? Um, I mean, what's the, what's the picture that you saw from the, well, from the so, region? Well, so the, the main holding facility that, that women and children and men that are, that are not immediately considered a security risk are being placed at, um, and these, these again are ISIS relatives, yes. right, is a place called Al-Hol Camp, which is uh, not far from Hasaka. And the latest figure we have is that they now have 72,000 people in that camp. It's just, it's just mind-boggling. And the conditions are pretty bad. You know, there's not enough tents. Uh, when I was there, there were, um, there, there were rainstorms, and so you, the, one, one morning they'd wake up and there'd be mud everywhere. Um, we saw with Shamaima Begum, the, the young uh, British woman who joined ISIS, that she gave birth there, and her child died um, a couple of days later. We now, I think, um, over, over 100 children, I think, have died. That, that might be wrong. It's, it's more than 100. But at least 100 children have died just in the last two months or so, either in the transfer to the camp or once they've gotten to the camp because of bad conditions. The men who are identified as, as foreign fighters and as fighters, 
they are placed in a different facility, in a jail. Mm -hmm. I interviewed a Canadian, uh, Abu Turab, who was well known on, on the internet. And during the entire interview, he was, he was scratching himself. And I stopped the interview at one point to ask him if he was okay, and he explained that he probably has scabies from you know, the dirty conditions that he's in. So the conditions are not great. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to turn now to the ISIS files, including what we have uh, over, overhead. And if, if you could just, before going to that, um, you just give a brief sense of what the, the background of the material and then we, we can start off, for example, with, with justice. Sure. So you've got some, uh, some pictures early on of documents that give us a sense of what justice is like yeah. uh, from ISIS. So I've been covering ISIS now for, for five years, um, and I covered Al-Qaeda for two years before that, so let's say seven years on this kind of, this kind of beat. And to me, the, the gold standard, the, the best work you can do is through the documents that this group leaves behind. Interviews are one thing, mm -hmm. um, but there's, there's something about internal records that were never meant for public consumption, that are not being twisted for a Western audience, um, that, that I think are the most revealing way to, to get at the heart of what this group is. So starting in Mali when I was um, in, uh, in West Africa as a correspondent for the AP, where I found several thousand Al-Qaeda documents, I'm, I'm always looking for opportunities to get these, and I've learned that this group is so bureaucratic and is so obsessed with paperwork that they never manage to pack up in time. <laughs> um, they, they, they end up leaving just thousands of pages of documents in the buildings that they occupied. And so in 2016 and 2017, um, over five different trips where I was embedded with Iraqi forces, um, I went into the buildings that had just been uh, liberated. They, they look like this. Uh, and, uh, and with the permission of the Iraqi forces who were, who were taking me in, I collected the documents that they were not holding on to for, for intelligence pur purposes. And it really kind of blew open this organization you know, for me. We're used to calling ISIS a so-called state. I found documents that indicated that they had, they had opened 14 different ministries. Mm -hmm. Ministry of Public Works, Ministry of the Treasury, Ministry of Public Health, uh, and they were actually running. And combined with interviews with people who lived under ISIS, many of whom are very critical of the group, um, one uncomfortable thing that we learned is that for certain services, take trash collection in Mosul, the militants managed to outdo the government that they had usurped. And that points to, I think, something that is very dangerous about them, which is that they, they managed to, to go in and hone in on, on real human grievances. The fact that the trash is piling up under Iraqi authorities, the fact that you need to pay a bribe to be able to get the police to, to look at a, a case of petty crime. And they address those very quickly, and they win acolytes by doing that. Hmm. What, do you, what, what do you want to show us first on, sure. the, on the so, slides? So how do I get it to move? Let's see. This is the right clicker. There you go. This is a document, one of probably several hundred, that we found um, from an ISIS police station in a town called Tilkif, which is about you know, less than an hour north of, north of Mosul. And what it is, is it's a complaint by a civilian regarding some, some petty crime incident that, that he had uh, endured. What was unique about this document is we, we collected them, we translated them, but in this case I was able to find the complainant. 
The complainant was a man who ran a chicken business. He basically was selling live chickens on the side of the road, a poor guy. Uh, and, and he would have his chickens in a, you know, in a bunch of cages. People would come and choose the one they wanted. He would slaughter it, pluck it, and then they would come back 20 minutes later and, you know, and, and, and take the chicken away. And in the complaint, all it says is that somebody owes him about 4,000 Iraqi dinars um, for, for a chicken that hadn't been paid. 4,000 Iraqi dinars is what, three, four dollars? I mean, it's like, it's nothing, right? Mm -hmm. The story he told me is that an ISIS member had come up to him. He had pointed to his plumpest chicken. He said, I want that one. And so he slaughtered it, plucked it, handed it over. And he said, the price is 4,000, 8,000 Iraqi dinars. The guy opens his wallet and he says, I only have 4,000. I'll pay you the rest later. So it's an ISIS fighter. What's he going to do? He accepts the 4,000. And then weeks go by and he keeps on seeing this ISIS fighter in the market and he keeps saying to him, hey, listen, like, you, you, owe me, you owe me a couple bucks. Can you please pay this? The guy never pays up. And so finally he gets fed up and he goes and files a complaint against an ISIS member. So we found the complaint, and then we also found what they did. This is the, this is the translation. The claimant, Zayed Imad Khalaf, alleges that the respondent, Barik, owes me the amount of 4,000 dinars for the chicken he bought for me. Um, there, by the way, there's, yeah. a, there's a form to fill out. There's a form to fill out, right? <laughs> there's a form with, I mean, just look at it, with a date, you know, 22nd of January, 2016, with a, with a serial number, et cetera. And these serial numbers are real because we found the sequence. So it's, this, is number, this is complaint number 329. There's 330, et cetera. Um, the, the police officer, the Islamic State police officer, immediately issued a summons, like a warrant, for this guy's arrest, even though that guy was an ISIS fighter. Um, the guy was brought into the police station. Immediately, as soon as he showed up, he paid up. And this is the document that attests to the fact that the amount of 4,000, they, they accidentally wrote 40,000, but it's 4,000 dinars was received from this guy Barak by Zaid, and then both people fingerprinted the document. And this is one of the uncomfortable things. You know, it's hard to talk about this, about the Islamic State. This is a guy who was a civilian. He's out, he's, he's not a member of ISIS, right? But he, and, and he was very critical of ISIS. You know, there, there's member, there are members of his family that have been brutalized you know, by this group. But he was clear in saying that this would never have happened under Iraqi authorities. He would have had to pay a bribe that was more expensive than the chicken that he'd been swindled. Um, and that this was a positive element of life under ISIS. And it was, it was adjudicated relatively quickly once he, once he complained. A couple of days, yeah. yeah. So yeah. you also have ethnic cleansing? as well. So you also, I mean, this is the positive, and then we have also evidence of, of ethnic cleansing. This is um, a lease document for a piece of agricultural land that was owned by a Shia that ISIS confiscated and gave to a Sunni farmer. So at the bottom here, I don't know if we can point to him. How do we point? Um, this is the Sunni farmer who has taken, all, uh, taken, taken the land. These are the lease conditions that he's uh, agreed to. Um, let me give you the translation here. You can see at the top here, it says, the contract, blah, 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 former property owner is this person, Zainal Hussein Ali, status Rafidi. Rafidi is the Arabic term that means, quite literally, to reject. Mm -hmm. And it's the slur that they use for Shias. So basically, they've taken this land because it belongs to a Shia, and they're now giving it to a Sunni, and they're making money off of it. It's, it's being leased to him. But this is a win-win for the terrorist organization. The Shias are being kicked out. The Sunni farmers who are their, their followers are getting land where they had no land before. Um, and ISIS is making money in the rent. 
Um, I love the contract conditions. It includes the fact that the renter has to take care of the property. He can't sublet it. <laughs> um, he has to keep it clean, and the property can't be modified. It's basically the lease from my apartment in New York. <laughs> um, anyway, um, a little bit later, we found this manual, which is, uh, this is like a 20-some page manual that outlines ISIS's rules for confiscation. And they spell it out very clearly. So this is, this is one of the preamble pages. And it says right here, confiscation will be applied to all houses of every single Shia, apostate, Christian, Nusseri, and Yazidi, based on a lawful uh, order issued directly by the Ministry of the Judiciary, ISIS's judiciary, <laughs> or by a mechanism agreed upon by the Ministry of the Judiciary, the Ministry of Real Estate, and the Ministry of War Spoils, right? So there's no, you know, they, they spell it out. This is not something that they're trying to hide. Um, and so the, the bureaucracy is both for the brutality and for the services that they provided. And the last, the last one, <coughs> if you could walk us through it, is, uh, gets more into education. Sure. Um, so this is, uh, this is a health certificate for a little girl, six-year-old girl. Um, and it includes the, the, the medical tests that she had to go through before she could enroll in an ISIS-run uh, school. Mm -hmm. um, so here's, this is, this is her name, Hanan Nuri Faisal, her date of birth. Uh, and here are some of the, the tests that she had to go through. So they, they checked her eyesight. It was good. Her ability to hear and talk. But my favorite part is this one. The vaccination. Vac <laughs> vaccination's complete. So, like, ISIS might be a brutal organization, but even they know to vaccinate their kids. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's true. No. What a, just so so if you could sum up here based on these kinds of documents, and so your 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 interview of people on the front lines, yeah. your examination of primary source records, what's your general sense of of how they have structured the organization? What ISIS, what ISIS is like as an organization? Mm -hmm. So. My big takeaway from the documents I saw is that, is that they really were trying to be a state. This wasn't just some PR move. This wasn't just empty propaganda. They really, they really um, aspired to that. And in some small ways, they managed to outdo the government that they had, that they had run out of town. Trash collection, certain, certain, uh, certain petty crime uh, aspects. Um, that shouldn't in any way take away from the, the brutality and the, the, the murderous nature of this group. Being brutal and being murderous and being violent uh, are, not, are not exclusive necessarily from being bureaucratic, being organized, mm -hmm. being hierarchical. Um, but it was, it was a vast organization. Uh, it was extremely structured. And these are the things that I think we missed you know, in, 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 our, in our fight against this group. These are things that are, in a way, even uncomfortable to talk about because even seeing them could be taken as, as, as propping up the group or justifying the group. Um, but as a reporter who's looking for facts on the ground, um, I, I think, think as a important. researcher, this is yeah. who they are. This is who they are, yeah. Before, before getting into questions, the, the last one, and this is something you and I have discussed in the past, is what are we likely to see in the near future? The group, as you've highlighted, in places like Baguz, has lost territorial control. Right. right. So the, the state apparatus is, is in some turmoil right yes. now. But what's your sense about, having visited recently, where they're potentially 
going next in, in, in terms of next steps? Sure. What are they likely to do? I mean, there's a, the, the, the historical context for groups like this that lose territory as they move to a guerrilla campaign. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think one of the, one of the thoughts I want to dispel is, is if, you, if you look at what a lot of officials are saying now, um, there's a notion that the, the territorial caliphate has been defeated, but the group, the group remains as an ideology. So there's this, there's this dichotomy that it existed as a physical thing, and now it's a thing in people's brains. And I think that that misses the most important piece, which is the piece in between, mm -hmm. which is that this remains an, a, a robust organization with a hierarchy, with a leadership. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, for, for all we know, is still alive. The, the spokesman of ISIS is still alive. Many of the most famous foreign fighters are still believed to be alive. So what I see is a dispersed group um, that uh, is disaggregated, that no longer has a physical address in the way that we had before. Um, but that is still very active in many parts of Iraq and Syria. Um, and just as another anecdote, on, um, on a trip in January, I went to Baghdadi's home village. We, we think of him as having grown up in Samarra, but in fact he was born in a village about an hour away uh, yeah. from Samarra. Um, again, an area that was, that was declared liberated 2015, 2016, a long time ago. The, the security forces that took me there, we went in a, in a, in a convoy with about probably a 10 guys that were heavily armed. Mm -hmm. They stopped the convoy probably three times before we got to his house in the one hour road that we went there, came out and tried to convince us not to go because they considered it so unsafe. Again, an area that has been liberated, right? Looked like nothing. It just looked like a bunch of you know, abandoned houses, but they were so afraid of an ambush or an IED. Um, and so even though they don't hold offices, ministries, et cetera, anymore, they still, in a way, control land by threatening that land. That land is not safe for Iraqi forces to go to mm -hmm. um, or, or for people like us you know, to go to. So it's not fully liberated. And I think that's the future. And, and unfortunately, that's the kind of thing that doesn't, um, that doesn't get an interventionist response. That's the kind of thing that is going to be left to local actors uh, who, as far as I can tell, are still, they're, they're stronger than they were, but they're still weak in the sense that they can't completely control that territory. And it, it also is an issue that doesn't sell politically well either. No. I'll, I'll say that because right. you, want, you want in these kinds of conflicts, you want a beginning and an end. Yeah. And in this kind of a conflict, there's really no end, at least in the short term. The struggle continues, may take different forms and different shapes. It may be less a contest now of controlling territory, at least for the foreseeable future. But there is a conflict, and it right. will continue. Right. And this is not over by any means. By any means, yeah. Um, so the first question from the audience, uh, and I'll, I'll read it, is uh, it's a plug on your podcast. OK, cool. So your Caliphate podcast is, was, was really fantastic. Um, in the era of fake news, the Times has made an effort to expose more sources and reporting methods. It seems like the caliphate was part of that effort. You made a lot of interesting decisions to leave in reporting process, side stories, art, audio artifacts, uh, equipment failure. Can you tell us some of the thought process in making that story, and will there be a second season? Yeah, thank you. Uh, <laughs> Sounds thank like you an HBO much. series now. <laughs> right. <laughs> So Caliphate is, um, begins with uh, an interview that essentially fell into my lap um, of a Canadian foreign fighter who had returned to Canada and who agreed to meet us late at night in a hotel room. 
I went there thinking that I was meeting a fanboy. You know, I, I couldn't believe that this was the real deal because usually the real deal uh, wouldn't meet with somebody like me. But in the course of the hours he spent with me, he confessed on tape to two murders that he claims he's carried out for ISIS. And in fact, since then, we have spoken to people who have played a sort of therapeutic role for him, and he's confessed to other murders. Um, and uh, uh, anyway, so we were, we were just kind of blown away when we, when we came out of that, that room that night. And we began working on putting it together um, and fact-checking you know, what he was saying. And many months in to the process of building this podcast, we discovered that he had lied to us about certain key details. He lied to us about the dates when he went to join the caliphate. He had tried to make it look like he went there before the declaration of the caliphate in 2014. Mm -hmm. um, he later explained to us that he thought that this would make him look more sympathetic, that that way he could look like he was a humanitarian wasn't aware of you know, James Foley or the Jordanian pilot, and in fact, he had gone much later. And I mean, this was like a real kind of like moment of crisis you know, for us. I mean, there was, there was talk of killing the whole podcast at that point. Um, and I was among the people that argued that we should lean into the lie, lean into the fact that he had lied to us, because in fact, that is what happens in the reporting process, yeah. right? That's, that's actually what sources are like. They, they tell the truth about some things, and they lie about other things. And typically in a print story, especially at the New York Times, if you put something on page one of the New York Times, there's, there's an element of, of historicalness. You know, this is, this is the New York Times saying that this is important, and therefore that it must be true, right? This, I don't think what, this would have worked as a print story. Mm -hmm. um, but it did work, I think, as an audio documentary, because we were then able to take his lie and deconstruct how we discovered that it was a lie. And it was, I mean, it involved geolocating an image that he had shown us uh, from Syria. The fact that in this image he's shooting a gun and you can see a bridge that doesn't exi exist at a certain point in 2014, so it has to have been later. Uh, it involved getting his school transcripts from, uh, from Pakistan. Uh, I mean, it was a really complicated thing. And we le leaned into it, and I'm really proud of that, because I think that just as, as our um, guest uh, has explained, I think that in this era where there's so much suspicion about what reporters do, um, it's instructive to realize just how much effort we actually put in to trying to get the story right. So the final question here was about... A second season. Second season. Second season. Um, <laughs> Which I think many are wondering. <laughs> there's not... Well, I'm about to go on maternity leave, <laughs> so, so there's that. Um, there's a pause. <laughs> there's going to be a pause. Uh, but afterwards, I mean, we haven't, we haven't come up with anything concrete, uh, but we're talking. Okay. Well, it sounds like you have a fan base. So, Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Next question. Um, what are potential new theaters for ISIS? Um, what, particularly those that are not widely reported or perceived as at risk, uh, the questioner asks about Sub-Saharan Africa or globally. What is your sense of where next? So I think, or, or now? Yeah, yeah. I think Iraq and Syria remains important. I don't, I, I don't think we should discount that. But in terms of the other theaters, we're seeing a lot of activity, as you know, in, um, in, in West Africa. In fact, just yesterday, uh, the, the ISIS affiliate in West Africa put out its first video from Mali. Um, we're also seeing the Philippines, Afghanistan, um, Yemen, I would say, and the Sinai as, as possible places. 
And uh, when it comes to any of those locations, did you meet anybody from or talk to anybody when you were in Syria from those locations? It sounds like you right. spent time talking to a number of foreigners, at least foreigners from, from villages like Bagus, but did you encounter many outside of Iraq and Syria? Uh, so when I was when I was working in Bagus, it was the foreigners, of course, who were the, the Europeans who were the most interesting. Um, so we spent a lot of time on that. But but every day you would see people come out, and there was a lot. What I noticed is there were a lot of people from Russian-speaking countries, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, uh, Russia, Chechnya. Um, it was impossible for us to interview them because they didn't speak Arabic. But Caucasus, Central Asia. Caucasus, Central Asia, yeah, okay. a lot, a lot of them. Um, and it, there was a logistical problem, which is that most of them, they were women and children. Uh, they did not speak good Arabic. Our translator did not speak Russian. Um, and so I, I, for one, was not able to, to interact with them. But there was a significant number from that place. And that speaks to the report that the Sufan group did, where we used to believe that the largest number of foreign fighters had come from Tunisia. And in fact, in the revised report, it's from the Russian-speaking uh, republics um, that, I, that I think the bulk of the foreign fighters came. Well, part of that is, too, is a range of people were going off documents found during the Iraq War, too, right. where there right. were a fair number of North Africans, including from Tunisia, right. Right. which has obviously changed. Uh, another question here is on the internet and social media, but it's it's a it's a question that 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 how much just from what you've looked at are groups, networks, or individuals learning from ISIS? So I'll read the question. ISIS is well known for their use of internet and social media. Have you seen other groups learning from ISIS, and what might be the next evolution in jihadi extremism and the internet, social media? Well, I'll point to white extremism. Um, after the New Zealand attack, among the places where, where I could and can still find the manifesto that the shooter put out and um, the awful video that he put out is on a white extremist telegram group. And telegram for me is 100% you know, associated with, with, with ISIS. Absolutely, um, yeah. so, so white extremists have also created not, not nearly as many um, not, in my opinion, as, as sophisticated as ISIS was doing, um, because the, head, the headlines make it very clear that these are white extremist groups, where, whereas ISIS has worked very hard to make, you know, to call it um, Chinese takeout, you know, uh, <laughs> as one of the groups is called, mm -hmm. um, to try to hide, you know, what, what they're doing. But the use of Telegram, I think, is being, is being adopted. Um, and then tactics. I mean, we're seeing the use of vehicular attacks being, being adopted by far-right groups. Um, when this is something that, you know, that was probably pioneered by Al-Qaeda um, in its inspired days and then taken on, enforced by ISIS. So we're getting near the end. Uh, you just brought up Al-Qaeda. What is your sense about whether a group like Al-Qaeda can benefit from the decline of ISIS? Did you talk to anybody that was, I mean, their ideologies are, ISIS comes from yeah. the Al-Qaeda break. Yeah. You have any sense of Al-Qaeda's pushed up Hamza, for example, mm -hmm. as, as an important uh, individual who's been trying to message to the world? Do you have any sense of, of in any of the people you spoke to, what their sense is of Al-Qaeda and whether that movement will benefit in any way, shape, or form from the decline, at least in territorial control, of ISIS? Hmm. 
And in so, part I ask because you've looked at Al-Qaeda as well. Yeah, yeah. The, so on the one hand, Al-Qaeda, you know, under, under the name that it uses um, uh, in, in Syria, has an enormous, you know, footprint in Idlib. If we believe that HTS and these groups are really are really still under under the Al Qaeda name, I don't. I haven't. I've, I've spent so much time on ISIS recently that I'm not a, as up to date on on AQ. Um, but it, it almost seems to me like they're biding their time. You know, they're they're kind of keeping quiet during this period uh, of 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 this of this particular phase, as ISIS um, is being physically fought uh, by a coalition of forces. And there seems to be very little intervention um, in the Al-Qaeda theaters, as far as I can tell. Last question here. Can you speak to motivations of female ISIS recruits other than the rom romantic ones you mentioned earlier? I'm curious about women joining because of perception that they have more agency in ISIS than in their current lives. Mm -hmm. Also, were there women fighters, meaning networks, divisions, uh, that you came across. What about, for example, joining for economic reasons rather than ideological? I don't know any foreigners that have joined for economic reasons. Um, I mean, these are, these are people that are leaving behind the Western, Western liberal democratic systems where presumably they can at least get uh, you know, a, a job at minimum wage for a situation in the caliphate where they can't work at all. Um, what, if we take them at their word, what the women coming out of Bagus repeatedly said was, I wanted to live an Islamic life. I wanted to, to truly live my religion, and I felt that in the West I couldn't do that. We heard this from Fabien Klan's wife, mm -hmm. um, who you know, claims that she couldn't live an Islamic life in, um, in, in France. This is what they say. I think that the utopia of the caliphate that ISIS sold, and the notion that these would be the, the mothers of the caliphate, I think that there was something attractive to a certain, you know, very small subset uh, of women um, that they f that they felt that they were building this this project and that they would be among the first generation uh, doing it. Which then raises a final question about to what degree, with the with the decline of the physical territory, uh, it almost certainly, and I think we've seen it in the numbers, mm. will decrease the number of people trying Absolutely. to get there. Absolutely, yeah. In the future, this this was the beacon uh, for for foreign recruits, and I think um, I was just talking to Ali Sufan recently, and he was saying that the numbers now are around 50 a month versus you know in the thousands uh, before. But the thing that's interesting about that number is that's still a lot higher than Al Qaeda in Iraq. Uh, was recruiting from overseas in, in, the, in the years leading up to 2011. And people often forget the number of fighters that were in Afghanistan and Pakistan during the 1980s, yeah. during the Mujahideen War. These numbers are much larger, even, even the small numbers today than we saw during that time yeah. period. And even after that period, they created, over the next several years and decade, they yeah. created substantial instability as they migrated to the Balkans, to, the Balkans, to yeah. Sudan, and then back. Yeah to that region, yeah. so this yeah. one is by no means over. Yeah, I'm curious to know what your take is on Al-Qaeda and Idlib. I, I think Al-Qaeda and Idlib, Idlib is the, the, the group that, you know, we've done some work on HTS, Hayatul yeah. al-Sham. There have been some challenges with their relationship with Al-Zawahiri. Mm -hmm. They have, on several instances, directly disobeyed mm -hmm. orders. It's hard for Al-Qaeda 
base with some of its leadership in Afghanistan, Pakistan yeah. area to um, give orders in a timely fashion yeah. in hiding. Yeah. So there are often months that go by when questions are asked for them to be answered. But there's an organization, uh, HAD, that is, uh, the, and a few other smaller networks where there are some concerns about external operations, mm -hmm. particularly through Turkey and into mm -hmm. Europe. I, mean, I think Europe at this point with Al-Qaeda in the Idlib area, the real serious Al-Qaeda networks, Europe is at most danger right, right. now of, right. of attacks. Um, I, I think this is one of the concerns that I've had with American politicians making these grandiose statements mm -hmm. that ISIS has been defeated or even the territory now doesn't exist anymore. It's in the same breath that people are ignoring the fact that we've got a very substantial number of Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda-linked fighters in yeah. Idlib, that uh, the Syrians, the Russians right now, and the Turks have not systematically acted on. Right. So they're sitting there right. at the moment. And I think it could be pushed with the ground offensive into Turkey and then, um, you know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, that has implications for Turkey. That's got implications for Europe. So I, I think Al-Qaeda, certainly from the Syrian perspective, is, a, is, a, is a, um, an organization that poses threat. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, thank you very much thank for you. coming. If you could all join me in thanking um, Ithmini.